0: the notification. All right. We should be live. But as always, um, we require some kind of external validation to know that we actually exist. So someone is going to have to tell us whether or not we actually exist. Hey, someone's saying that we exist. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take that as, as legit. Hey everybody, Fraser here. Uh, this week I'm joined by George Dvorsky. Did I say that right? That perfect. Perfect? Perfect. Uh, perfect. Fellow Canadian, proud uh, Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and uh, science writer for Gizmodo. Editor, what, what's your official position?
1: Uh, senior staff reporter right now. Senior this staff my reporter. Incarnation.
0: Yeah, senior staff reporter for Gizmodo. Uh, You you cover a lot of science stuff, definitely cover a lot of the space stuff. And in your former life, you uh, were quite the futurist and uh, transhumanist. So my hope is that we can kind of cover all of the things. Uh, People always give me a hard time if I don't sort of say who is joining me. George, how's it going?
1: Good, thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak to you. Um, I haven't had much of an opportunity to do so. I've been uh, a follower of your work for, I can't remember how long. Universe Today has mm-hmm. uh, been i on my uh, RSS feed since the very beginning, and it still is to this very day. So uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you today and uh, to reach out to your audience. To your, yeah, I—I I, we just group. crossed
0: 20 years. so Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's crazy. Wow. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and same for you. I mean, this is going to be one of those sort of, uh, you know, we're going to say nice things about each other for a second here. Everyone's just going to have to put up with this. Uh, but yeah, I really, you came on to my radar and I, I've got a, a, you know, man, like, I don't know, cl- eight years ago, close to 10 years ago, you had done an article and I feel, I, was it for wired? I'm trying to remember, but essentially how to dismantle mercury and build a Dyson sphere in five easy steps and can you and I think a lot of people like yeah. like I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with you know my work Isaac Arthur's work um uh, John Michael Godier there's a bunch of people who are sort of d- tackling various topics of of advanced civilizations various Kardashev civilizations and I think that that you definitely influenced a lot of our thinking in in these matters. So so can you sort of take us back to to yeah, what, that how, where was, did you uh, that, get that, into that, that?
1: That initially was a post uh at my blog sentient developments yep. which uh, that started back in 2002 I believe and uh that I blogged at that at that site for the longest time. It was uh, and knew uh, uh, it's from i9 picked up on that particular post and she right. asked to uh kind of uh, republish it at io9 and that was actually the first post that i ever had i believe uh in featured in full at io9 and, and i would say that 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 relationship with Annalie newitz uh evolved and, and to the point where i ended up becoming a, a permanent staff writer there at io9 and our the science crew that we had there eventually morphed with the science crew at gizmodo as they were under the same umbrella organization and now we're one big happy family uh at gizmodo but yeah that was uh uh, as I'm sure many of your, uh, as your listeners and viewers are aware, the uh, the whole Dyson sphere concept is is so fantastic, but it's, it also makes so much sense when you think about it. I mean, you think about where, where, you know, a civilization is going to end up uh, in, in the reasonable far future, but not crazy, crazy far future in terms of, you know, the sun emits just so much energy that it's just so, so much waste in space. And if we kind of extrapolate further in terms of, uh, the tremendous energy demands that would uh, uh, be uh, required by an adva- like a super advanced civilization. It, only, it would only make sense that we tap into the most natural, the most accessible resource there is, which is that giant ball of fire at the, at the, at the center of the solar system. And yes, yeah, so this idea uh, that Dyson came up with that we, we covered with gigantic ball, uh, or shell if you will, of, of solar panels. And so that virtually no energy is wasted from the sun. And that, and like you mentioned uh, aptly that that would, therefore we would graduate at that point to a, um, a Kardashev scale. Two. To civilization. Yeah. Which means that we've effectively uh, uh, grabbed all the available energy that our solar system has to offer. So as I'm not entirely true because obviously the irradiation is being emitted from Jupiter and, and Saturn and so on, but, but we can, we can, Build Dyson spheres around them as well. Should be we watching. I believe that's also been proposed by some thinkers. But yeah, I mean, um, the, I think the, I think there's a hurdle in terms of thinking. Well, how could we possibly build such a, a horrendous, you know, mega scale project like that? And what was fun about the uh, the how to build a Dyson sphere five easy steps? Well, obviously it's not that easy. Can we, we're not going to build it next next week, for example. But it sort of broke it down into a steps where you kind of like thought about it. Like, yeah, geez, you know, that's actually not the craziest thing I ever heard of. So the idea here was that, you know, you just start small and you just work your way big. And we wouldn't require, you know, human workers in space to build. it. we would need a sufficient uh, level of uh, robotic power and obviously artificial intelligence. But where you have these bots just working autonomous, just building, building, building until this shell just gets larger, larger, larger. It's not going to be overnight. But the fact of the matter is, is that once you have a sizable solar array, functional in space and already collecting energy for you, then that's going to start to power uh, you know, the rest of the project. So the, the most difficult part will be getting started. But once you reach a certain critical mass, then boom, this thing's just going to start to build and build and build as, as you get these robots that are probably working on, sol- on models of self-replication, self-repair. And uh, as we were discussing earlier today, Really, what is perhaps the biggest burden to completion at this point is not even necessarily the the technology and the and the robotics and the AI to build it, but it becomes an issue of material. Is where in the where do you get all the stuff that's required to continue to build what would be? And I forget, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, I believe like thinkers like um, Andrew Sandberg and others have actually crunched the numbers to show how much mass is required, how much how big this shell would be, um, and some uh, thinkers have proposed, this is not my idea, but other thinkers have proposed that, well, we just start to, you know, there's a lot of inert matter in the solar system in the form of some dead planets, particularly those in the inner solar system. Why don't we just dis- literally dismantle Mercury, uh, possibly Venus, and certainly take a lot of the, the junk that's just floating around doing nothing. Uh, in the asteroid belt, which, by the way, I, I recently learned is not a whole lot. No, of stuff.
0: no. If you if you take all of the mass of the entire asteroid belt, you end up with about five percent the mass of the moon. So it is not it's that, very. Oh much. wow! Even it's even less than I thought. That yeah. is not a lot of stuff. No, it's there. not a lot it, of stuff. But Mercury is is fine. And I think you know. I think it's important that, you know, it's not a sphere. It is a swarm. You are not building a rigid sphere. You are. Uh, you're building a, a, a bunch of solar panels step by step. And it, I, I always like to joke that we've actually already begun our Dyson Swarm. When you look at the spacecraft that we already have in space, collecting solar power and doing science on various spacecraft, that is the beginning of our Dyson Swarm. It's 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 already yeah. started.
1: I agree with you. I, I thought of it in similar terms. And um, yeah, I... I, I the, the, I do have some, obviously, some logistical concerns or practical concerns that once we start to fuss with the uh, uh, the amount of matter that is spinning around uh, the uh, the solar system, that you could mess with the orbital harmony that that currently exists amongst the planets. So uh, we would have to do some serious number crunching before we get into such a project to make sure that we wouldn't create this kind of domino effect where suddenly all the planets are entering into what the, the planets that we want to remain start to assume these. Rather chaotic uh, orbits that could actually even potentially lead to collisions many hundreds, thousands, millions of years down the line. That, that sort of a thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I I do also tend to think that we are in the early uh, stages, if you will, of this the, the dissonification, if you will, of uh, of human civilization. Just in terms of how many uh, uh, in terms of the revolution that we're having right now in terms of the solar panels and solar arrays, we're we are. Pre- we are increasingly covering more land mass on our planet with arrays that are capable of harvesting energy. And that's only going to, I mean, because like I said earlier, we just we cannot afford to waste all this free energy that we're getting from the sun that's currently being so uh, terribly wasted. And uh, not to suggest that we'll have like a Cybertron sort of situation, but I do envision the day where the Earth, a good portion of the Earth is covered with, uh, or at least all the deserts, any, anywhere where land is not really usable or we don't really uh, need it or we're not obviously infringing upon it. Uh, wildlife and, and the balance of ecosystems. But to a reasonable degree, we will, I think, not waste any space on the planet. But more so, well, why do it on planet when well, we can do it off planet? And this is another, I'm sure you've heard of these space-based solar array ideas where we, hard, we, de- we definitely build these arrays in space and beam the energy back down to Receiving stations on Earth. Uh, I know the Japanese are uh very much working on projects like this. Their space agency has a project in the works. They're not building it, they're still just thinking about how to make it happen. And you can understand why Japan would be interested in such a thing. They've been, yeah. uh, they're a bit gunshot when it comes to nuclear and uh, other forms of energy, yet they've tr- they got a they're again this advanced kind of a civilization in terms of their technologies and they get they, they have the tremendous need for energy and they want to be self-sufficient that way there was and
0: one was- uh, there was one thing that i still i'm trying to get to the bottom and have somebody actually do the math for me on this is will beaming energy back to earth increase the overall sort of thermal load of the planet because you are going to be taking megawatts gigawatts of solar radiation you're going to be beaming it down to earth in in the form of say um uh i don't know like microwaves and then you're going to be turning it it into things and they're going to be pushing out waste heat and that's going to go into the atmosphere so i wonder if in fact in the long term it actually that won't work it's like the next global warming but now we're like you know
1: I hadn't even thought of that, and uh, uh, that's ob- obviously something that's you know worthy of uh, further scrutiny because we, I would hate for us to you know, make things even worse than they are today.
0: Yeah, so it feels to me like, in fact, like, like I think people are going to go like, "Oh, space-based power is the way," but then people are going to realize, "Oh, actually, if we put it too much space-based power, we're just going to heat up the planet," and that's a that so back to yeah. the same problem. So I think that yeah. you know a lot of people ask me like, "Why do we want to?" go to space. And and I really like Jeff Bezos's rationale for this, which is that we want to go to space because we want to make Earth a better place. We want to get all the pollution, all the power generation, all of the manufacturing, mining, all that stuff, and just get it off the planet, and get it out into space. And so I'll bet the power of the Dyson sphere or the Dyson swarm will be used in space to to manufacture and all that kind of stuff. And, and Earth will just ideally if it still is around if it hasn't gotten dismantled too um will be the will be the place earth can do the one thing that it's great at which is to be a great place for life a great place to live agreed and the rest of the universe can just can just be our you know unless we find life anywhere else but the rest of the universe can just be our our uh, manufacturing facility
1: and and you and you bring up a really good Point, which is more of a question, which is, well, why would we? Why are we doing this? Why, like you said, why go to why go to space? Uh, why build a Dyson sphere? Why, why become a, a, a stage two Kardashian symbolization? civilization? Uh, like, isn't enough? Uh, isn't enough enough? You know, so to speak. But again, the, there's a, there's maybe this inexorable law of technological development. It's kind of like filling up your hard drive. No matter how big your hard drive is. Uh, you're you're going to end up just filling it up. I think civilizations are the same way. They're just going to keep advancing until they can't possibly advance anymore, or they just destroy themselves first. And one can argue this goes back to kind of this transhumanist uh, thinking, uh, uh, the, uh, transhumanist being again. This, uh, this just this general idea that uh, human evolution has kind of got us to this particular point. Uh, Today, in terms of what our bodies are like, what our brains are like, and that now our our technologies are such that we can now kind of take over from Darwinian processes and start to uh, re engineer ourselves, like talk about life extension, uh, intelligence augmentation, changing the way our bodies work. But there might be a, a general, uh, there might be a general, um, evolution towards losing our biological nature, so kind of the cyborg. Suborgification of humanity or even these these kind of like um, really kind of like science fiction ideas where we would upload ourselves and become completely digital, non-corporeal beings. Uh, Clearly, if we're going to do something like that, and again, this is all very speculative, if we are going to do something like that, we're going to need a lot of computers. We're going to need tremendous amounts of computation. We can't even begin to imagine, therefore, what as digital beings, the kinds of computation we would need to create the kinds of environments, the workspaces, the, Recreation. We want to, the scientific experiments that we want to conduct. The simulations within simulations within simulations. Yeah, of, you know,
0: all those ancestor dolls, simulations. These,
1: these matryoshka dolls of you know uh, of, of everything. Again I, again, I just feel that we'll never have enough. So yeah, we're going to build a Dyson sphere so that we will have enough, and we can kind of progress to that uh, that stage two of uh, of Kardashev uh, lifestyle. That we can. I'm not. I'm not necessarily a believer in Kardashev three. Uh, I don't know if that exists. Uh, we that the jury's still open on that certainly our galaxy is clearly not does not host a Kardashian right. three because uh we don't see signs of aliens extracting the com- all the energy from the milky way it's clearly not happening we can see all the stars at, at night they're not all obscured by um their own you know dyson spheres um but we don't know for example what might be happening in other galaxies but again i, I from what we see it out there in the cosmos it it doesn't appear that Mm -hmm. production three is a thing.
0: Yeah. We Um, don't see any evidence of like it would, there would be a telltale infrared signature from a galaxy. that has been entirely surrounded by Dyson swarms. We would see that and we don't. And so to the best of our ability right now, we don't see any type three civilizations and it, you know, you having dismantled Mercury. So I would be interested to know why you think, that it isn't going to happen or it isn't possible. Like, is it, yeah. I mean, are we alone or, I mean, is it, are we alone or is it just that it's impossible? Cause it doesn't it's feel couple, like it's impossible. No, it's an upsetting question, right? Like, yeah. why isn't,
1: why don't we see it again? going to get back to Fermi paradox and the great silence. And th- these are questions that have that trouble me bad, you know, trouble me very, very severely. Um, there's a number of ways you can maybe answer the question and, uh, Perhaps most optimistically, uh, it's that maybe being a Kardashian too is enough. That that, that's kind of a a good end state. And I'm a believer in what's called adaptationism. Is that uh, so? Maybe we may be required in some future post-human state to agree upon a mode of being that that guarantees our well-being and, and just as importantly our ongoing survival. And that to deviate from that adaptation. Would be catastrophic. So that might be just okay. We're settled now as a, as a type two. Let's park it here. Good enough. Because even in that mode, we could uh, pursue what's called the hedonistic imperative, which is this idea that we kind of create our own version of heaven. Uh, again, almost every civilization since the beginning of time has had this, uh, this 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 mythology, if you will, of 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 what it means to be in the afterlife or what it means to transcend, you know, this current state of being. And I think only in the last couple of hundred years, maybe we've lost touch with that sensibility and that urge. I mean, maybe through some utopian political thinking that still exists, but certainly I'm thinking more existentially, more even spiritually for the lack of a better term. I, I think that to create these ultimate modes of, of bliss and happiness and, and sense of well-being would be in a, in a way the most ultimate end state, the most ultimate manifestation of where civilization could head. I think this kind of Star Trek vision of, of just going into spaceships and traveling and exploring just for the sake of it and conquering just for the sake of it and just continuing to just grow in this sense. I'm, I'm not sure I buy it. Also, uh, you and I love space, obviously, but to a certain degree, we're, we're seeing that it's a bit of an information desert. There's, only, there's, only, there's almost nothing we can't analyze, even from Earth, in a way. Mm-hmm. We're only getting, once we get some more powerful telescopes up there, we might even send some interstellar probes out there. Like I mean, this is nothing thing. I'm not rambling now, but like, I would like to even just talk to you about the fact that we have potentially interstellar. What is it? Three potential interstellar probes in the making right now, uh, that are uh, in, the, in terms of the
0: two Voyager probes
1: and the uh, and the uh, well, the New Pioneers
0: Horizons. and New Horizons. So you've got oh, five. and the Pioneers. Yeah. Oh, there's five. Yeah.
1: Right. Unintentional yeah. in a way. uh Interstellar, and they're not interstellar yet. It's going to take quite a while still to to be in that space in between. You will of yep. solar systems. But, um, yeah, back to what I'm saying is uh, maybe Kardashev 2 is good enough. That's where civilizations ultimately uh, uh, stay.
0: The that, problem with that theory. That seems ridiculous to me, right? Like if you just graph yeah. the demand for power all the way back to the beginning of life itself, there is a continuous growing exponential power curve that continues on through life forms into multicellular organisms, in through uh primitive man all the way through our entire civilization. Like it seems why, like we don't know what we'll use that power for, but we, we will want to use that power and we'll always invent new reasons to use that power.
1: Yeah. This assumes that we will have a uh, control over our, our destiny. Uh, oh, like after the robot
0: will... apocalypse.
1: Yeah, the, the yeah. We could have an artificial, well, they'll want to use the power. Well, they do and we don't, we can't even presume to, know what an artificial superintelligence would do in terms of uh managing the, its post-human um uh you know uh, ch- uh i guess parents with for lack of a better better phrase that the ones who cr- brought it into existence um and it may just kind of uh, force us to, to live in such a modality again i'm just i'm not trying to maybe trying to play devil's advocate a little bit but uh your point is well taken in that it, I, again it, it's, it, i just presented one possible theory uh, you're saying maybe you don't necessarily buy it. So for sure, if the trouble though, it gets back to Fermi Paradox is, if civilizations are able to break out of this uh, isolationist, in a way even a xenophobic mode by staying at home in their home system, then why, do, again, the back to Fermi Paradox, why haven't we seen it? Yeah, where are they? The Fermi, the where are they question, again, just as a complete a huge uh, overview of the Fermi Paradox, the Fermi Paradox is this uh, seemingly counterintuitive observation that uh, there's been plenty of time in the Milky Way's history uh, such that civilizations could have traveled to every corner of the Milky Way several times over by now. And if, that might sound ridiculous to some of your listeners, but if you if you actually look at the numbers, and even if you talk about one-tenth the speed of light and yeah. one-hundredth the speed of light, it still adds up. A lot of people have done this to figure out, yeah, it, it, it could have happened, because one of the most... The, the number one argument you get against why haven't we met aliens is like, oh, space is, the galaxy is too big, space mm-hmm. is, is too big. It's like, no, this is the whole, the the, the, the central, the crux of the Fermi products is that, no, it's not too big. It's not too big in the context of how bloody
0: old the Milky Way is. Well, and not only that, right? Like an asteroid made the trip.
1: Yes. So, oh, my God. Right? Absolutely. So, yes. so
0: you know, if an asteroid can make the trip, then you would figure a, um, a, some kind of clever robotic spacecraft yes. that is dismantling an asteroid as it goes could make the yes. trip as well. So I and like you we know, just
1: said, we just admitted that we even have five of our own devices right now that yeah. are hurtling you know, out, out into the cosmos, right? In fact, so, I think
0: someone did the estimate that there's something like uh, 30,000 interstellar objects in the in the the larger solar system out to about a radius of about two yeah. light years at all times. Wow. So there wow. are there are space rocks making the journey from star to star all the time. Yeah. And, and you've got
1: thinkers like Harvard's uh, AV Loeb who speculates that even some of these rocks might be co-opted by civilizations and converted into a spacecraft. Right. Well, that's what I'm like saying. You know, you co-opted. take one of these, right. you
0: know, you send one of your, you know, you pull one of your mercury dismantling probes off of its uh Mercury job and you latch it onto one of these interst- interstellar asteroids and have it make the journey to another star system, dismantling the asteroid as it goes, making more copies of itself, and then they jump off when they need to, to go to other places. So yeah, yeah. And here
1: we are. In the, and again, just back to the Fermi paradox, what we also have to realize is that we're, we're, we're extreme latecomers to the show here. Um, the amount of time that has elapsed prior to Earth forming and a, a civilization like ours emerging it, is is massive. Uh, so, again, the, the Fermi Paradox is not an immediately easy thing to dismiss as to why the galaxy is not either at a Kardashian 3 scale or why we don't have obvious signs that aliens have been here. And that's another thing that's lost in a lot of people who are eager to dismiss the Fermi Paradox is like, oh, they came and then they went. And it's like no, they would not. They don't just come and go. If they come here, they stay here. They 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 will do. They will take what what they need from the solar system and, and reconstitute it, morph it, twist it, contort it, create it into a something that's usable for them. Um, I, I just can't see a civilization just coming here for quote unquote scientific purposes uh, and this whole great this whole like again Star Trek notion of prime directive and nonsense like that. Again, another thing, anytime anytime you come up with a theory that discounts the Fermi paradox, again, a, again, a hugely common one is the zoo hypothesis, where that, mm-hmm. oh, that, that they're there, they just put us in a zoo to observe us from a distance and so on. It's like, okay, that's absolutely a possibility. But the problem with, with this and so many other theories is that this has to assume, therefore, that every single extraterrestrial civilization that has ever popped up into existence in the Milky Way has agreed to the same policy, to the same set of rules, the same... Philosophy on how to treat other extraterrestrial civilizations, and um, I don't. How could that possibly, you know? How could how could there be like a, a code of conduct mm-hmm. that everybody would agree by? Why is, yeah. there, is there? All it takes one, is one,
0: break, one alien to go. I'm just going to let them know. I'm going to go and and tell them that it's not true, or you know, we're going to disagree. No, it would require a level of agreement that is incomprehensible to to right. that wouldn't happen in our current, you know. Obviously, for humanity, and we don't want to anthropomorphize them, but still, um, yeah, no. anybody, I mean, anybody who thinks they understand the Fermi paradox, I think they've solved it, uh, hasn't thought enough about I, the Fermi paradox, yeah. and yeah, and so. and for me, you know, I lean towards we're the first intelligent yep. civilization in the observable universe. That's my that's my leaning, right. um, because I don't want to think about the consequences of the Great Filter. Yeah. So I'm just going to oh, go yeah. with the former because I don't want to admit and the latter.
1: I like that because there's also an, an adjunct theory that can work in in harmony with that, which is not only we're not we're not necessarily the first. Uh, we can say that we are amongst the first. So there's this idea that developmentally, and again, we would have to have some physicists actually. Provide us, and some cosmologists provide us with a reason for this: that only now, in the Milky Way's history, we're living at a very special time where intelligence like ours actually can emerge. Again, I don't know what, why that would be, I don't know why it would be now. But it'd be nice if we could find like a theory X, is like, oh, because there. This, I mean, I can't even make things up because I don't even know what, what would preclude, you know, intelligence from existing prior to, let's say, uh, this particular. St-. We're about, we're about, yeah, we're about halfway through. Well, we're halfway through the life cycle of our sun, and our sun again is a relative latecomer to the, to the Milky Way, I believe. Anyways, but it's a it's a, a pleasant thought to think that maybe that there are like ourselves, all these little bubbles of, of intelligence is emerging at this relatively the, relatively the same time in the Milky Way, and that we are going to expand outward at at a relatively the same time at a relatively the same uh, same pace, and like in this kind of like Ray Kurzweil vision, our bubbles of uh, expanding singularities will will meet and it will do meet and greets and we'll just continue to just grow and grow and grow until we en- envelop the entire um milky way galaxy again uh, i don't know if i believe this but um that's a that's a stretch. Yeah. but again this is the problem that the fermi uh, paradox forces you into is you got to come up with some pretty crazy theories to explain it away
0: so and, uh, so how has um being a like science journalist. And now that you've been doing this full time now for, for several years, how has that changed your perspective as being a transhumanist? So,
1: uh, it's a great question. And I would say, uh, one, it has certainly made me much more critical of what has, what can be an often insular looking and even a, uh, Wishful thinking, you know, optimism of the transhumanist—that when you, you, know, I cover science paper after science paper after science paper, and I have to look at it as a journalist. I have to look at it through critical lenses, and um, uh, you know, point out some of the maybe the limitations, and you know, you see how long it'll take something to to actually come to fruition. So it's made me a more critical thinker, I would say, for sure, more skeptical, even, I would say. At the same time, however, being being like on top of this news on a daily basis. I see very little, and, I'll, and not to contradict what I just said about being skeptical, I see very little that makes me upturn my, my former kind of like ideas as to where we're headed as a species and where we're headed as a civilization. And I'll give you a good example, well, many, I could give you many examples. Mm-hmm. Like just look, I mean, we've, like 15 years ago when I first became involved with this community, we were talking about, of course, g- genetic modifications. Uh, to, human, to humans and, and, and human enhancement and giving ourselves these new capacities that you know we, we would not have through nat- through natural processes. And of course, we didn't know how we were going to do. it, We just figured some voodoo in the future will, will, will make it happen. And that voodoo now happens to be the CRISPR-Cas9 editing system or any kind of CRISPR system that, that, that right. works. And sure enough, late last year, I'm reporting on the very first uh, human, uh, genetically mo- the first genetically modified humans to come into existence. Sadly, it's through un- unbelievably controversial circumstances where a Chinese scientist uh, did this unilaterally and, um, and, and uh, even potentially legal- illegally, uh, and now will be facing the consequences back home in China. The scientist's name is He Jiankui. But um, that sad aspect of this story, notwithstanding, what he did was, was at least if, if what he's claiming is true. What he did was he used the CRISPR system to create uh, genetically modified twins that have a natural immunity to the HIV uh, virus. And that's, that, that's actually, in my books, an enhancement because that's not something that a, that a human would normally be born with. It's a, a, an extreme uh, small minority of humans are born with that, but for the most part, that's not what you would consider normal human functioning. Uh, it's by definition a kind of an enhancement, although as transhumanists and, and a lot of bioethicists would argue there's no distinction between enhancement and therapies when it comes to stuff like this. that, For example, I don't think any of us here would consider vaccinations to be an enhancement. We consider that, that to be an indelible part of human functioning. And aside from a, a, whack, a wacky minority who's ruining things for everybody else right now. Yeah, get your um,
0: vaccinations, everybody. We'll,
1: yeah, get your vaccinations. For the most part, it's something we celebrate and we consider to be part of, yeah. the, of the human fabric of, of well-being. So similarly, in future, we wouldn't call this an enhancement, let's say, the, the natural immunity to HIV. Uh, we would call it normal, a therapy that's part of normal human functioning. Yeah, But um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, these so not only were these the first genetically modified uh, human, t- first human genetically uh, modified uh, individuals, they also happened to be the first enhanced individuals at the same time. So it kind of st- struck two things off the checklist at the same time. And that's that's when I cover stuff like that at work. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, yeah, this is like the kind of stuff we absolutely projected yeah. happen years ago. And Here I am writing about it, you know, and or, you know, any number of things like, uh, uh, for example, a couple of months ago. Uh, researchers developed a system where it was uh, translating, you know, brain signals uh, directly into speech. So unlike those, they, some of the more uh, um, clumsy systems like the late Stephen Hawking used, where he actually had to use various uh, 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 twitches and uh, gestures to uh, emit the words. This was quite literally evoking. Uh, signals from the auditory cortex to produce a, a a voice, a speech through a, synth- a voice synthesizer. Again, kind of fantastic stuff, right? So and it goes on and on and on. So again, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, in any I, I think maybe the transhumanist uh, urge is tempered a little bit by the slow pace of development, but there is still this inexorable pace of development. I still see things happening.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. I I mean, I see a lot of the you know because w- the work that I do is is sort of all of you know right beside all that stuff right and so i'm i'm seeing those news stories as i'm looking for the space stories and i'm able to see all of these various developments but a lot of the stuff that i watch say in artificial intelligence like my back like my degree is in computer science so i'm you know i can see the kinds of of developments that are happening in in artificial intelligence machine learning adversarial generative networks things like that and it's just it's astonishing that suddenly they've got these tricks you know this person does not exist where you can see a computer drawing pictures of human beings that aren't real and you really gotta work hard to figure out whether or not that's a real person or not a real person um or and and then other variations of that and so None of it really boggles the imagination to, to say, oh, you can imagine it's generating full screen video at 60 frames a second. It's you are, uh, you know, you're watching these video games play, you know, you're watching computers play Go really well and then it... De- plays chess really well and then it plays dota 2 really well um and which is just a that is just a mind-bending accomplishment and so you can kind of see all of this stuff unfolding in real time it feels i mean it it feels like a digestible to me as a you know as someone who is aware of watching the progress but still, when you think about it in the in sort of the period of time, you know, as I ask Google what time it is or to, get, to give me detailed instructions by voice, and it does it. Um, and, and, and it also kind of amazes me how quickly we are just incorporating these discoveries and these accomplishments into our regular day-to-day life. Yeah, I have a supercomputer that is uh, on my computer. You know that I hold in my yes. pocket that has access to all of the stored humanity that is that has high definition video and allows me to, you know, access all of this stuff at high speed, almost anywhere that I am. Next, you so, know, wow. and from an yeah. airplane.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, things we've seen in the last several years that are just like, continue. Like, I, I don't take any of this for granted. The, the trouble is, once 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 we are exposed to it, very soon thereafter we. Take it for granted but I was just a couple of quick anecdotes One, when those two Falcon 9 rockets yeah. landed at the same time in such perfect synchronization I thought my god I've ne- this was the most science fiction thing I'd ever seen in my life it was just it was visually I mean it was just so spectacular and it was just a very humbling thing to see and uh, obviously full props to uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk and what they're doing there to kind of keep to pushing the envelope forward in terms of our space capacity but uh, back to artificial intelligence, yeah, I am mean, even at, at work, you know, uh, reporting on uh, the AlphaGo Zero system, I think it's been a couple of years now, but this is the system that, it uh, wasn't, it wasn't, a, this, AlphaGo Zero di- didn't, de- well, it defeated the, the Go champions, the the, Gro- the Go grandmasters, but more importantly, it defeated the, the the supercomputer, a Go system, the original Go system that defeated the grandmasters. Yeah. And it did so, it did so. By self teaching itself how to play uh, Go over a couple of days, it just played itself, like, played itself, played itself. And in a couple of days, it had accumulated. I think they were saying, like, well, how old is Go? Like, Go is like thousands of years old, bro, right? And like, it, it basically had accumulated not only all of the human knowledge, acquired human knowledge of Go in a matter of a few hours, it even succeed, exceeded it by an order of magnitude, such that it, de- it demolished the Go system, uh, I think 100 games to zero. 100 games to zero, and the authors of the study, the associated study, this is by the way Google's uh, uh, Alpha. What is the name of the company? Maybe your listeners can uh, can remind remind me. I'm completely zonking out on the company that uh, does the AlphaGo. But um, they um, uh, now, uh, yeah, the the authors of the study described the the only word that they could describe it was uh, a level. It was just a level of super intelligence, you know. And just whenever again, for for transhumanists and and um, future st- to utter the word uh, superintelligence kind of sends shivers down your spine because many of us are s- kind of scared witless about it all, right? And uh, just to see like, oh, like we are having more and more machines operating beyond human comprehension. Oh, great! You know, and <laughs> another yet another thing that we have no clue what it's doing. You know, and sure, sure, it's in the friendly confines of a board of a classic board game. But the, the the concern moving forward now is again move. As these AIs and ASIs move into domains that are important, like you know, oh, I don't know, managing the uh, the, the our hydroelectrical grid, or uh, managing nuclear silos, or strategizing the next you know way we attack our enemies, you know, capacity to do this or whatever, that uh, we're just up, we're constantly going to be upping the scale of responsibility and impact uh, of what AIs do and, and where AIs could potentially go wrong. So one of the most um, pressing and in, in, in quickly emerging fields in artificial intelligence right now is, is solving this problem, which is the black box problem, where you, you're, you're the computer at the end of the day spews out an output or does something, reaches a conclusion of some sort. And the developers have absolutely no way of explaining how it did that, or even to a certain degree, understanding the answer it kind of brings Douglas Adams's mm-hmm. uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to mind where, you know, what was the answer it was forty. 42? 42 yeah. yeah and and it was like well, I don't know what it means right so then it, this the whole questions? the series the, the, they just kind of like go from there so yeah so whether there's this movement even that look if you're going to build an AI if you're going to build a super powerful AI you better bloody well be able to explain uh how it's doing it how it's crunching those numbers and why it came up to, came to that answer and well, and I I I think I I am a supporter of this I think we absolutely should be pursuing that particular lo- uh, line of uh, of inquiry but I'm also at the same time extremely dubious that uh, years from now, as AI is becoming even more powerful and more sophisticated, that we are these puny ape brains are just not going to be able to understand it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just these brains are only are only so good. Like, or and, and even like an AI can only dumb it down so much. <laughs> it's like okay, like look stupid. Like this. you know, I'm trying to tell you. This is how I did it. Yeah. But there's no way, there's, yeah. what, what was
0: the- uh, if There are no the words for this in your human language.
1: <laughs> yeah, th- there's a great analogy. Uh What's, it, is it Green that did the, the documentary on, on string theory, on M theory, and everything? Yeah, what? yeah. the one,
0: the one on, on Nova, like a couple of years yeah, ago. it was really
1: good. But he had this uh, scene in the, in the documentary where he was trying to give a, a physics lesson to a dog. So the, dog <laughs> the dog was just sitting there, you know, looking at the chalkboard. And the point that Green made was like, look, I'm giving the best lesson. Like, I I, you, I can't teach this any better than I am now. But there's no, it's just this dog just cannot. It's not. His brain is incapable of grokking the subject matter. Yeah. And I think that's an excellent analogy for maybe 10 years down the line, or even maybe today, for example. Yeah. I don't know. It, it certainly depends. It'll be domain specific, right? Uh, application specific, but eventually the computer won't be able to dumb it down so I mean, we're have to, <laughs> that's we're so funny have to, yeah we're just gonna have to trust it yeah when we hit the green button go do it hope it won't destroy us or hope you know hope you know hope we won't get out of you know out of control or yeah worst of all you know this kind of unintended it's the unintended for me it's the unintended consequences yeah
0: absolutely you know, and that, that is that that is not uh something that i really want to uh i mean we did an episode a couple of about a month and a half ago, I talked to Phil Torres, who's one of the people for the uh, oh, man for the existential risk council, the uh, study for existential risk, and sort of went into a bunch of this stuff and how little is being thought about the possibility, you know, just where the the stuff's all going to go. Um, and but but one of the things that I find very comforting is that that one answer to the Fermi paradox is will not be. Uh, robotic you know like the computers took over their home planets because they would send spacecraft so the rea- the fact that we don't see uh, robotic spacecraft colonizing every nook and cranny of the milky way tells us that that can't be the answer for the fermi paradox and yet that's the one that seems most likely i would love to give people a, a chance to ask you a bunch of questions uh, this comes from Arjon. Uh is more general AI on the horizon, or will we be seeing very focused AI for the foreseeable future?
1: Yeah, it depends who you ask, right? I was at a conference in Prague in uh, late August, early September last year, and it was it was called, they, I'm sure the organizers wanted to call it the Artificial General Intelligence Conference, but they <laughs> called it like the uh, Human Level Intelligence Conference, which is a bit awkward, but it's it's basically the same thing. Uh, a general intelligence, like as your uh, listener viewers is, is very aware, I'm sure, is uh, is is very human, like in, in the sense that it's super adaptable. It can be put in any, in many, many different kind of contexts and, and figure out what the, what the heck's going on. Uh, we don't have anything remotely like that right now. Everything's super specialized, super niche focused. It does one thing. Uh, sometimes at super human level, right? Uh, whether it be like chess or go or even a calculator arguably is super intelligent because it's still, uh, I guarantee you it does math better than you can do it in terms of some of the simple arithmetic. But um, so in terms of the question, when when should we expect to see it? Uh, there were people at the conference uh, that were, I think, way too optimistic when they start saying things like, you know, two to five years. <laughs> and, and, uh, but these people are at the same time trying to secure investors because uh, they're, they're, they're working on it themselves, and this part, this part of their plat, the platforms that they're working on. So of course, they have to be they have to, they have to present these kind of plausible timelines that would be of interest to you know stakeholders. Personally, uh, I think we will get there, uh, probably in our lifetime, depending on how old you are. Uh, I I would I would again I hate, hate to do the cliche futurist thing, uh, and I, got, I hate I always hate the one thing I always hate about being uh, involved in this kind of futures discourse or predictions. Uh, I have more talk about what I feel is inevitable some point down the line. Uh, But if I was to be pressed at it, I'd say, you know, the quarter century, you know, 20, 25 years, maybe less. Again, the problem is understanding that whole Kurzweilian law of accelerating returns that the, the, the technology starts to get faster, 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 and faster. I'm a firm believer, for example, that, uh, we will start to off- progressively offload AI development to AI. Right. I'm a firm believer that artificial superintelligence will never be invented by a team of humans. It'll be invented by a, an extremely sophisticated system that's artificially intelligent. So once you have AI developing AI, oh my God, then forget it. Then who knows? And once you have re- the requisite computational, yeah. you know, capacity and the resources to do it, um, and it knows what, apparently knows what it's supposed to do, then it could be relatively quickly.
0: Yeah. So well, you I would, can I, see the like the developments happening section by section so now ai is you know for the longest time computers have better have been better calculators than us and and now computers are better go players than us and shortly computers are going to be better uh creators of random photographs of human beings than us and so on and so forth and so the question really is is like do you is the intelligence the general intelligence of a human being just the collection of all of these independent functions? Yeah. Or is there something more? I mean, yeah. we can see that evolution was able to make meat be generally intelligent. So the question is, how long will it take us to turn silicon, which appears to be very fast into some level of, of intelligence? And, and it's just, a you know, it's a matter of however many yeah. factors of yeah. magnitude are we off, right?
1: Yeah. And I I don't believe for an instant that the brain is not something that is intractable in terms of our understanding. It's a pound of meat. It's a pound of meat. It's pretty, it's the, as they said, it's the most sophisticated thing we've ever encountered in the universe. I I love that because I believe it's true. Yeah. We we have yet to create an actual emulation of it, not even anything remotely close. Um, but we'll get there because it exists in the real world. It's, it's, it's susceptible to all the laws of physics and chemistry and, and, uh, it's going to be it'll be hard, but we you know, we'll, and we may come. We'll hit roadblocks in terms of you know being stalled in terms of certain lines of inquiry. But eventually, I feel that we'll uh, we'll figure we'll figure this thing out and create a and create a functional model of it, which is an artificial general intelligence. Um, interestingly, though, uh, and this this might the the the, th- the trouble, and I don't know, maybe the, the word trouble is is, is fair, but. Uh, the the same day that we invent so-called invent an artificial general intelligence, though, is pretty much within the next minute we'll have an artificial superintelligence. Yeah. <laughs> by definition, the next tweak, the next iteration of it is now, by definition, art- artificially super intelligent, which is it now is like beyond uh, the, the, our human human capacity. And um, there's a line of thinking, and I'm somewhat partial to this, that once we have AGI it'll be real quick to something uh, much more profound in terms of its capacity, uh, some kind of uh, artificial super intelligence. So we need to be uh, very careful uh, once we get, so as we, as we approach AGI, put your seatbelts on a little bit, right? <laughs> maybe yeah. kind of pump the brakes a little bit uh, and maybe try to bring in everybody like, you know, let's have, a, let's have a, a very sober conversation about what we're doing here. Well, it's
0: possibly a little too late then. I mean, these are, these are conversations, you know, this idea of the control problem that you're going to try to figure out how to make something smarter than you do things that are good for you, right? It's like ants trying to convince us that we should be taking good care of ants, I guess my wife would think that's yeah, my wife would think that's a good that's, my, my wife is a it's a insect photographer, so she would be all for that. But but um but you know, I would love to hear their arguments. I'd love to hear their uh as opposed to us advocating for them. So I think that's the that's the issue that we uh, that we get into. Um all right, let me take some more some more questions from from people here. Um uh, so A.V. Scott and Flower asks, as a futurist, do you take into consideration socio-economic political factors into your considerations about the future?
1: Yeah, I do. And I'm not usually optimistic. Uh, and again, really, uh, that's yeah, you're not. I, know. So, so it's I, know. I shock you, looking, you know, watching the news on a daily basis. How, yeah, I'm I know. Hesitant. I know. Not but, possible.
0: but don't you I mean, so, by like, don't you by the by various standards, you know, the world is getting better in every way that we can measure. Apart from a couple, yeah,
1: I'll tell you what my line of thinking is. Sure, um, and I gave this talk at uh, where the heck was it? I think at, uh, it was like I think an existential risk conference at Stanford or somewhere. And the, uh, this was now maybe this was definitely over ten years, t- yeah, ten or eleven years ago. So before before this current feeling of uncomfortability, if you will, uncomfortability. Um, so. I, my concern is that we're increasingly coming into the possession of very dangerous technologies and we're learning that can even be social media for goodness sakes. Yeah. Which who would have predicted that, but you know, Um, but I'm thinking more apocalyptic scale or, you know, mega scale, uh, uh, you know, Devices and weaponry, and so on. And right now, as it stands, our civilization—we have one kind of, arg- arguably, one uh, you know apocalyptic scale uh, you know device. And that's a, a nuclear weaponry, but th- that's already old tech now, right? That's really old tech. What, seventy-five years now? Yeah. You know. So, and it, interesting how in that seventy-five years we haven't come up with another one, which I I do find that interesting. But I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't for one one second believe that that was the last you know apocalyptic scale uh, device that we come up with one can quickly come up with you know various nightmarish scenarios involving uh, nanotechnology like self-replicating nanotechnology of course artificial intelligence we just talked about weaponized AI just watch watch Terminator, and you can have another idea of you know ro- robotic scale you know Armageddon um uh even uh through biology through uh you know the unleashing uh you know uh biologically genetically engineered or however, uh, Lab-engineered pathogens, and you wipe out mass scores of, of, of people. So, the trouble is, not only is there the concern I have that these are going to be developed, the concern I have is is the accessibility
0: mm-hmm.
1: of them, and how virtually anyone will ar- arguably be able to actually create this themselves. Yeah, this kind of bit, this twisted democratization of apocalyptic scale technologies. Yeah, where if you look at the trajectory of, of, of human civilization, it's, it's, it used to, it was at one, at one point, you know, you, it was, you know, um, state level military was required to unleash a horrific amount of, you know, devastation, but over time it's becoming less and less in terms of that size. Now you can, now it's down to, let's say, you know, this kind of asymmetric threat and now you're going to get down to even team level where you have 12 individuals, each one of them specials on a certain thing They could actually unleash horrific amount of, are even then eventually down to maybe a couple just even a couple of people or just and one
0: even, bad person bad sadly yeah
1: yes you know and that scares the crap out of me yeah and, uh, so back to the your your listeners' question so whenever okay, democracy and, and liberties love it it's great we're so privileged right now depending on where you live in the world you and I are in Canada and we're so privileged and blessed to be in this country. But that's because the the stressors around us are manageable, Uh, and 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 uh, we don't meet. There's, I mean, one can make a strong case that we should be a five alarm fire right now because of global warming. I I would say, what the hell? This is crazy. What's happening with global warming? Why? But anyways, I'm going to park that for just a second. Yeah, yeah. That'll be a different episode where I
0: just freak out about global warming for an hour.
1: Right, which we could easily do. But let's say there are these tangible, demonstrable threats like. Of the ones that I just described, unfortunately, and we saw this with the 9/11, where you saw a very quick withering of civil liberties in the United States. You saw these laws get enacted, where suddenly security, some privacy was out the window, and, and and borders became all messed up, and all that sort of stuff. So, as as these stressors become more intense, more severe, more real, I'm I'm afraid to say that not only does it take away from uh, our liberties and our privacy and all that, it starts to edge away at our, our basic civil rights, and it also introduces the need, or not even the need, it introduces the pining for authoritarian-scale governments, the strongman, mm-hmm. the quasi, uh, uh, quasi-dictatorial, quasi even, even borderline totalitarian-style mm-hmm. governance to control the population such that it doesn't result in a kind of mass destruction. And that's the only way to prevent uh, this kind of scale of, of Armageddon being unleashed.
0: And, and that's the argument that Nick Bostrom is making right now. Like I know he, he just did his talk in Vancouver, actually, at the uh, the new TED Talk. And that's the gist of his talk is, is I think that we're probably going to have to – the purpose of AI is we're going to have to create a totalitarian AI that's going to stop humans um, from wiping each other out.
1: Yeah, I, I, and I what's the alternative? Was, yeah. yeah, no, it's scary, right? Yeah, so that's why I'm very grim about uh, the, our future in terms of the political prospects. Uh, it's sad, right? You know, because I, you know, I come from this kind of this this uh, this community, these transhumanist borderline utopians, and we talk about, you know, and even earlier, we talked about, you know, we're talking about Kardashev twos and hedonistic imperative and eternal bliss and all of that, and like, well. That's amazing if we could if we can accomplish it if we could actually get there. But oh my god, like it really right now. I just it's uh, I hate to be this wet blanket on your show. Yeah. Uh, but it just really seems to be uh, that the, the, the trek to get there just seems so impossible. Yeah. If you At could least, deliver so the
0: button that gave everybody on Earth the opportunity to release a plague that would wipe out anyone of their choosing, how many people would? Press that. How many times would that button get pressed?
1: Sadly, we see on amount, like you saw that happen Yeah, at, yeah at we do break. see it. You
0: know, it's it's just it, yeah. it's
1: just endless. The the, the nihilism uh, that that's uh, you know it's just for a yeah. so, so so I again, wonder I
0: mean, what's the I mean what's the solution, right? Like on the one hand, you absolutely want to increase. I mean, again, <laughs> as Canadians, we enjoy just an unprecedented amount of freedom um, here in our country, and I'm sure. Yeah, two days ago a lot of our canadian uh, fellow canadians were able to appreciate uh, the level of freedom that we had and and yet you've got this situation where these technologies are getting they're coming faster they're getting each one is potentially more and more destructive and and what do we do?
1: I, I have no I don't know. answer for you. No, I, I mean, don't know uh, I, One one idea though we, we, we definitely need to, uh, lose this kind of, uh, the, the, the nationalism that's running rampant now globally and start to think more with a global mindset and, uh, no one's talking anymore about global governance and strong United nations and these transnational organizations for, uh, oversight and, you know, for accountability. But I think that would be a, a starting point is to just have, uh, a, just a, sh- a sense of glo- a renewed sense of global community and, uh, and in a humanism a restored humanism and uh that that i think would be uh, a, a very uh super modest start to uh i think you know tackling what is what's a, what will be a, a tremendous challenge
0: yeah uh so what uh what's a recent story that you worked on that was really cool I mean, we were all bogged down on all this uh, black hole stuff, but you had another cool story like yeah. the same week, right?
1: Yeah, the same day that the black hole story broke, I, uh, my colleague Ryan Mandelbaum was very excellently and very expertly covering the black hole. We put out a couple posts that day. Um, I was busy working away at a, at a, at a nature paper uh, in a completely different vein altogether, which was archaeology and anthropology. So I'm sure many of uh, your uh, uh, your viewers are familiar with uh, the Hobbit species that was discovered uh, about 10 years ago, or maybe 15 years ago or so, uh, on the island of Flores, and uh, they were this diminutive human. They were they were it was a Homo florensis So they were humans, but they were like I said a diminutive version. They were under three foot seven. And what happened to them was uh, the theory, anyways, is they were they somehow um, uh, became locked in uh, onto an island uh, where they where they stayed for many many thousands, even potentially tens of thousands of years, and this this uh, what's called insular dwarfism set in, which is an evolutionary process that the, that many animals are subject to, like any kind of pygmy species uh, on on these islands. It usually and it has to do with access to resources and so on. So we learned by that discovery that even humans, uh, well, first of all, uh, humans uh, are subject to insular dwarfism, and oh my God, there was a human species that was um, uh, that, that was this, but now the new news that came out last week, or it was last, just last week, uh,
0: yeah. two, weeks oh, yeah, yeah. two weeks
1: ago, two um, uh, yet another discovery elsewhere, um, this was, um, geez, where was it now? Oh, the Philippines, and, uh, completely different, uh, group of humans, again, but they, they were human, and they gave them the, the name, um, it was on the island of Luzon in the Philippines. So they gave them the name Homo luzonensis. Uh, what's remarkable about, about these, these individuals, they might have been even sh- uh, shorter than uh, the hobbits. They, and by the way, the time scales we're talking about was about 30, I believe the memory serves about 30,000 years ago. So we're talking at the same time where, where humans were, like Homo sapiens was around. Yeah, so it might have been a little after the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals went extinct forty thousand years ago, and also the Denisovans, which were kind of a sister group to the Neanderthals. But anyway, but the point being is that at one given time, not too long ago, we had at least like what four, four or five groups of humans scattered around the planet, possibly more that we don't even know about, which is like to me mind blowing. Yeah, we were the only ones left standing, Homo sapiens, That's it.
0: Yeah, uh, there the was rest is very The tasty.
1: Of, of Homo, but now there's just Homo sapiens. But uh, what's remarkable as well about uh, Homo uh, Floresensis was. They exhibited some rather strange characteristics. Uh, for example, they had um, toe bones, feet bones that were oddly reminiscent of Australopithecine from Africa, which is like what? Because this is a this is like a predecessor species to uh, Homo sapiens that are, we, as far as we know, they never left Africa, never came close to leaving Africa. So why are they all the way in the Philippines have? This, like, if you should see the bundle. Like you do a comparison. It's like, whoa, it looks identical. Right. It could be, though, an example is called convergent evolution, right? right. Where similar traits emerge in a separate species when it's under similar environmental pressures. In this case, get this the environmental pressure, if you will, or the push was to return to an arboreal existence. In other words, Homo were returning to the trees, right? In theory, they, once they were bi- walk, bipedal walkers, but they were living in this jungle island environment. And maybe just to be safer or to forage for, for foods over the course of thousands, thousands of years, they were, became proficient a tree. So these bones, the bones, so let me, I missed a very important part. Yeah. These bones on the toes and even on the, on the hands are wonderful for climbing, grasping, and hanging off branches and climbing trees. So that's why they think that, uh, again, it's just a theory. We don't, this yeah, is based yeah. on just a jumble of bones just, that they found.
0: I mean, just who, who like, knows how many more uh, are are like this? Well, George, we've reached the end of our hour. Uh, this was an awesome chat. Uh, where can people find out more about what you're working on?
1: On a daily basis, Monday through Friday, you'll find my uh, my scribblings at Gizmodo and uh that's that's the best way and uh I, anywhere two to three posts a day yep. you know try to, to chug out the content but uh, we hopefully do a good job and like a, me personally uh as you as your uh viewers are probably getting a sense i there's a lot that i cover you know i, I also love paleontology and dinosaurs and all that stuff but certainly anthropology archaeology and i definitely hit the space beat as well spacex and russ cosmos and mercy and all that yep. stuff i, 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 I'm, uh, I definitely i'm on top of that I uh, did an update today on uh, the, the Changi 4 mission, which is not much to report on, but there's a little bit of you know, that, that yeah, they information. they least some new pictures. Slowly. Yes, I need two pictures of the yeah.
0: release. Yeah, well, it's, so- it's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and I really appreciate you, taking the time to talk. And it's been just wonderful to watch your whole career unfold as a, as a science and space journalist. And uh, you're doing, you got you and and the rest of your team. i got to get Ryan next. I'll corner him. Absolutely. And and have an interview with him as well. He
1: would love him for sure. Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, But uh, thanks to everyone watching today. Uh, Thanks for the donation. Uh, Really appreciate that. Thanks to the moderators and the great questions. And uh, next week is, Oh, man, who's going to be next week? It's a really good one, too. Um, and I even forget. Jeff Notkin, right. Meteorite man Jeff Notkin is going to be my guest next week. Uh, the also new president of the National Space Society. So it's going to be a lot of fun. He is a real treat. So definitely make sure you show up. All right. Uh, I will put some links to the show notes so people can find out more about what you're doing. George, thanks for joining us today. And uh, we will see you all uh, next week.
1: Cheers. Bye-bye.